Hello, this is Mary. And this is Chandler. And you're listening to The Miss Fisher Files. Welcome back. We are talking season two, episode four, Dead Weight. Yay. I don't know about yay. I don't. This, this is not one, my favorite episode. Yeah, it's just my uh, I feel like this might be the weak link in this season. This season? Yeah. I think so too. I, I mean, you saw my stack of notes for the previous episode, and this one I've got mm, three pages. Yeah, I have fewer notes. Yeah, there aren't. I mean, there are some costume changes that are notable. Um, but few, the themes, few of them. I guess, I mean, the themes, we don't touch on too much. We talk about um, the Aboriginal population just a tiny little bit. Season one was every different immigrant population, you know, like back yeah. to back to back. Yeah. And um, so we haven't done that very much in this second season, but there's, the I guess, difference in social strata the Aboriginal population has. Yeah, this, this is actually, I, I did some digging on this because this is a big deal in Australian yeah. culture. Um, so the Aboriginal population, of course, um, suffered from pretty terrible systemic racism. Um, but it was a little bit different than what we see in the U.S. because the history is different. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some pretty, um, pretty awful terms that have been associated with Aboriginal people, and especially people who are of mixed race in Australia. And um, have you ever seen the film Australia? It's a Baz Luhrmann film. It got, no, it's on my list. I am going to watch it like I actually next really week. liked it. I, really? I love Baz Luhrmann, but it, it was panned by a lot of critics. I love Baz Luhrmann, and S.E. Davis is in it. Right. That's I haven't seen it in years. Okay. I need to see it again. It's on my, my like it's at the top of my must watch movie list well, right it, now. It deals with this this issue oh, okay. of um these half Aboriginal um children. And hmm. um the the really and I forgive me, I'm gonna I'm gonna say the term, it is a terrible term. The the derogatory slang term for them in Australia was creamy or creamies, plural. Huh. And so people who were half white or partially white, partially Aboriginal. And there was a whole slew of legislation that happened in Australia starting in 1886. There was the Aborigines Protection Act of 1886. And then that same year was passed the Half-Caste Act. And Half-Caste is the, quote, official term that they used for these people. And they mentioned the the term Half-Caste in this episode. Mm -hmm. People who were um, either half or partial in some way, partially white, partially Aboriginal in, in origin. And the law stated, and this law was on the books until 1943, which is so terrible. Um, the law stated, and, and it was, um, this, this law applied to Western Australia and Victoria. So Hmm. Melbourne, Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know, there may have been similar laws in other, in other states in Australia, but, um, but this really applied in the West, and so in the outback, in the bush, um, and that's what the movie Australia deals with. I think it I think it takes place in Western Australia, although it's hmm. been a long time, so okay. I'm, I'm rusty on that. But the law stated that the government could seize um, half-caste children and forcibly remove them and place them into other custody through the welfare system. And um, these 
kids became known as the stolen generations. And they were, they, most of them were placed in white households and then they were raised as domestic servants or other fairly, you know, terrible positions. Have you seen the long walk home? trying to remember who directed it. I know the soundtrack was done by Peter Gabriel. It's really good. Oh, wow. But that that was all about children who escape this program and make the trek home. Wow. And it is I astonish- can't even imagine that across the, yeah. the Australian and desert. They, they like- follow a fence. Um the whole way home. It's it's an oh, amazing. Oh, the film. rabbit fence, right? Yeah. Do they follow the rabbit? The rabbit fence. Yeah. Rabbit fence. Yeah, because there's a, that's another thing about Australian history is the rabbit-proof fence that spans the entire continent. Wait a second. Continent. That's the name of it. Rabbit-proof oh, rabbit-proof fence. fence. Yes. Well, the actual fence spans the continent of Australia. I've not seen this movie, but the the British brought in rabbits to Australia for huh. for game. Okay. And rabbits did what rabbits do, mm-hmm. and they multiplied. So they brought in the dingo. Maybe the dingo ate your baby um, to take care of. They brought in these dogs to take care of the rabbits, but the dogs went feral and became the dingo, and the dogs didn't go after the rabbits. The mm. dogs went after things like wallabies, which didn't have any defenses against dogs because there weren't any wild dogs in Australia. So, and you know, there, there's this whole awful history of invasive species being brought into Australia to deal with various natural problems in Australia, and then the invasive species went completely wild and nuts. And so, like the Australian caden toad is still a huge problem, and the rabbit is still a huge problem in Australia. So mm. they built the rabbit proof fence that spanned the entire continent and i don't know how much it helps or not yeah but um yeah huh. so i can't believe i totally had the name wrong so they can so these this kids follow so, the, they follow the fence to get home so yeah the, the so what whole, is it like a thousand miles or something it's so long i yeah. don't i don't know what the actual length is but it is an incredibly long distance that these kids walk Jeez. home and but yeah and that so that movie came out in 02 mm. um i pulled up the info it was directed by philip noyce based on the book follow the rabbit proof fence by doris pilkington garamara basically um, white people should not have been allowed in ugh, australia like they just I, cause I, nothing but trouble like, white people seem to cause trouble everywhere they go yeah. is the lesson i'm learning the more yeah. i learn about the world yep. um that's how I learned about the whole, the whole stolen generation. Which, as a parent, I cannot even. Yeah. Cannot, can you I, like, imagine can't having my, your kids taken away? No, because I can't. Because, because they're half they white. Like, to half, be, yeah. I yeah I can't. Like I can't even let my brain and then go just there. Assuming it's so, oh well you're half caste or you're and and a lot of these half caste children were actually the children of half caste parents mm-hmm. and just assuming that oh well you're ab- Aboriginal or you're half caste so therefore you can't possibly be a good parent. Let's take your kids away. So that's and uh, turn them into servants, right? And that that brings up the issue with the mother in um, in this episode. So yes. we've got the the Aboriginal um, population as a theme, like the mm-hmm. the the difficulty there, um, and then we also have this bond of mothers kind of theme that right. Franny brings up at the end. But so the mother who is trying to protect her child, who is, um, I think his name is, is Tom. it Ned? Oh, oh no, Tom. The little Tom kid, yeah, Tom, Tom is Derringer. the older one. And then who's the, the little kid? The little kid is, uh, yeah, it's like Ned or Dan. 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 Yeah. So she is trying to protect her younger son from being put back in the system. Right. And he was taken from her. Yes, and it must under have, the under, under the, the Half Caste Act of geez. 1886. I I wasn't sure if she was like 
an unfit parent if that's why he was taken because she didn't well but that's basically what the legislation assumes right because she herself is half cast right now knowing what they that they just had that jurisdiction to just come in and take the children regardless of the parenting you know the uh, that makes more sense because she it didn't make sense to me why social services would take her child she seemed like a totally good parent Mm -hmm. like with it, doing everything right, you know? So now, yeah, yeah, knowing that, that they could just come in regardless. At any time. And I think, you know, there's an interesting bit of that scene where Franny is trying to talk to this woman. And and first of all, there's that subtle little bit where she says, oh, you said this was about my son. Yes. She thinks she's talking about Dan. Dan, yeah. And then Franny doesn't even know about Dan yet. Um, and so she brings up, well, Tom. And she says, oh, Tom. Right. And that's that subtle little moment. I didn't notice that until I watched it for recording this episode. Like, I, I had not noticed that little moment. When she's yeah. like, oh, right, the other kid. But, yeah. You know, the thing that really stuck with me is that Franny kind of swoops in like, I'm the rich white lady who's going to save you. Mm-hmm. Look at me being all nice and not racist and you know, I'm liberal and here, I'm going to come help you. Yeah. And she's rebuffed. Yeah. And she's like, lady, I don't need your help. Mm-hmm. I don't want your help. I don't need your help. And I think that it's really great that they did that because I think there is still this prevalent notion that, and as you know, we're feminists, we're white feminists. And there's always been, well, recently there has been this criticism of fem- that f- modern feminism being a white woman's game. And, and unfortunately, I think that's true. I mm-hmm. think I think a lot of modern feminism has ignored the the work and the struggles of women of color. And I think there's still this prevailing attitude that privileged white women can simply swoop in and save everybody, and that everybody will be grateful for it. Right. And I think that's particularly toxic. I. It's not just true of this wave of feminism right I think that, this, this that there has always been this and Franny is a very progressive person and she does fight for people who don't have a voice and that's all well and good however like she is so used to being in this position of privilege that she can mm-hmm. just walk in and save the day and get patted on the back for yeah it. and yeah. then she's going to be greeted as the conquering hero uh-huh. and that is simply not the case here and I'm really glad they went there yeah but, and it's subtle they don't beat it over, they don't beat you over the head with it but I really love that that this woman says, no, yeah. I, I don't need you to be my savior. You're right. The the reception is definitely chillier than normal. Yeah. I think that's a really powerful Well, and, and the mom also has like, she's like, it's always going to happen. The police are always going to win. Yeah. Like, she's just, I think, police, very realistic about. I think about, the line is something like, police don't like people like us. Mm-hmm. They um, don't like our kind. And she's very... <laughs> cynical but realistic that like they're just they're gonna lose the battle every single time yeah and what other evidence is there you know like that's what she's always seen right and she will continue to see that unfortunately for many many years to come right um so yeah i think she's just like what are what are you gonna do about this rich lady yes exactly and i think it's all but i think it's also interesting that we, we get a glimpse into um now i didn't write it down what is the name what mr biggs's wife Mrs. Big Arthur. That is really that's the name that they give her. That's so. That's the name that Franny so gives her. Good. And I I love her. Mm-hmm. She has got. First of all, I love that she is. They're this odd couple. She is this like six foot tall woman, and he's like four foot eleven or something. He's like this little guy. <laughs> yeah, and like she could almost wrestle, or she could be a boxer almost. But she 
she's so angry and so bitter. And then we find out why is because she loved this Jimmy, this Jimmy, this young man that she saw as her son. Mm -hmm. And because she could never have her own son. And I, it just, it's so heartbreaking that whole story. And I think that there's also something they kind of touch on here is that apparently um, boxing is a big deal in Australia. Really? Yeah, at least historically. Huh. Um, the boxing kangaroo is a symbol, is a national symbol. Um, in World War II, fighter pilots stenciled the boxing kangaroo on their fighter planes. Hmm. Um, it, the image dates to 1891 when it, it um, a, a cartoon of a man boxing a kangaroo um, appeared in Melbourne Punch. And the, because, you know, kangaroos actually when they fight each other, they, it resembles yeah. boxing. They yeah. have this fighting stance. Um, when they were used like dancing bears too. Did, did yes. Unfortunately, actually... there is also like a circus act yeah. history of people pitted. Yeah. Oh God, let's just not yeah, even go okay. there. Anyway. But also, um, but boxing as a sport apparently has a long history in Australia. Hmm. And apparently there is a long history of Aboriginal boxers. Hmm. Um, including there's a modern day one who I think is still boxing. His name is Anthony Mundine. Um, or Mundine, um, and Lionel Ro- Lionel Rose was a very famous Aboriginal Australian boxer um, who's lived from 1948 to 2011 and was also from Victoria. So um, I I think they're kind of touching on a cultural touchstone here. Um, but I yeah I think the whole this idea of these like rigged boxing matches it's sort of like the circus like it's this yeah. this illusion getting people to part with their money um and then pitting these huge guys against these little guys because they said it's always a bigger draw they get bigger bets if they if they if the fights are mismatched Mm -hmm. um and i love that hugh really gets a chance to shine in this episode in all in all ways we see he shows emotion when we hear his backstory he gets to be the strong guy. He gets to be the, the coach, the teacher, the protector. Hugh, really. This is really his episode. Yeah. He also has a different um, interaction with Jack than we normally see when they're in that interview room after he's brought in Tom. And Jack kind of says, don't let your friendships get in the way of you doing your job. And we don't, I guess we do see Jack like give these little... <laughs> little cuffs on the shoulders right. to him periodically, but this was a different spin on it than we've seen in the past. And yeah, you're right. I mean, this is really a Hugh episode. Um, the the scene where he's in the kitchen with Dot telling oh. her And there's about, two kitchen scenes. Like, Yeah, there are. The first one, he sort of hints at it that, you know, more kids without a dad. Yep. And then it's the second one that he really opens up and... and breaks down in front of her and, and he's so good he's so I mean, Hugo good. Johnston Burt like across the board has he is flawless in this yeah, entire he, series hitherto he's always kind of been a little bit cartoonish like you can always count on Hugh to have you know he'll, he'll blush the and, goggle-eyed reaction yeah. or you know but but in this one it, he's there's so much more depth mm-hmm. to him and it's just that scene is so heartbreaking and it really is really subtly beautifully played by both of them. Yeah. Oh, you. Oh, man. 
And I love how Dot is like, I'm stronger than you think I am. Oh, I've been that's a line taken hostage down. by Latvians. I've been woken by intruders. I've been, you know, pushed... Oh, Almost pushed into a giant machine. Yeah, and I've been driving with Miss Fisher. <laughs> like, <laughs> And every day I have to get into a speeding red car with Miss Friny. Oh, yeah, I, as he's telling her, don't worry. Every day my job is a worry. I love that so much. Yeah. That's a great speech. Yeah. Um, she also has a line at the gym when she like marches towards the, the gang oh, leader. Yeah. Don't yeah. you dare threaten Hugh Collins. He's worth 10 of you. Yeah. And I love it. I She's love that. so good. And then, and then Friday's as as, line yes. later where she says, you know, beside every man is a good woman and she must always be ready to step in front. I, that's one of my favorite quotes from the entire series. Yeah, I, in fact, so bought a uh, bookmark on Etsy oh, that has that line on that it great. with a, a little hand-illustrated pair of shoes and um, have it sitting on my desk next to my computer so I can look at it whenever. I love that line yeah. so very much. Also in the background is a uh, little letterpress printed boxing broadside advertisement <gasps> on, the, on the pillar. Really? Yep. Nice, nice. little touch. Um, I also love that Phryne makes a reference to loving naked boxers in the ancient <laughs> Olympics. Like, yes. <laughs> like, oh, if only they were boxing naked. <laughs> and Hugh rushes to cover up I know, Tom Derringer. I know, like, modesty. To, like, oh, come on. Yeah, <laughs> it's really funny. That's, yeah, that's when, when I see scenes like that, I'm reminded of just how Victorian everything still was. Yeah. Then, the, and, like, the how the slightest bit of flesh morality, was Morality, like, oh, nipples on a dude. Like, yeah, we can't, <laughs> right. we can't and have then, that. And then I'm like, oh, right, so everything Franny does would be completely scandalous. Like, pretty much everything she does. Pretty yeah. much. If we are still in the uh, mode of having to cover up a, a guy's torso. Yeah. This is, this is neither here nor there, but I, I love... Um, the scene where Phryne is interviewing Mrs. Big Arthur. Um, I love that scene where she's doing laundry behind these tents. Like it's so, it's such a great little glimpse into like, yeah, this is a show, this is entertainment, but these people, this was their lives. They mm-hmm. lived there. They, they lived in these tents and life has to go on. And so these tents are all a little shabby. They're hard worn. They've been there for years and she's stringing laundry lines between them. And I just, I think that's so charming. I love that yeah. little nugget. And she's, and her washing powder has eucalyptus in it because <laughs> it kills the germs. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. The laundry is a really perfect little detail because you are bringing what is sort of a spectacle based way of life. Yeah down to like the mundane details well and speaking of which the whole she's trying to frame these gangs Mm -hmm. when she you know by throwing washing powder on the guy because apparently one of the gangs threw flower bombs because was it the wool packers the yeah they the the one guy the leader of the wool packers is a baker's assistant so he he's the one who's got the access to these flower bombs (laughs) like what yeah are they lighting the like his flowers incendiary like i i don't know aren't they just like spattering it over their victims curse you i've got flower in my eyes again (laughs) (laughs) they're just like taking gobs of flour out of their pockets and throwing it because it just landed in there when they were working at the bakery i don't it it sounded like he actually had packaged up these little oh okay maybe to like like 
maybe for blinding people, like throw a flower in their eyes and they can't see? Well, or I mean, I guess I, I'm not an expert on gang warfare, but don't Haven't they... Haven't you read The Outsiders? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, I did. gold, pony boy. Right. Like, don't <sighs> gangs have their telltale, like their little symbol? Yeah, I guess, I guess everything brand. really is just West Side Story when you boil yeah, down to it. Kinda. Like, Yeah. I mean, gangs have tags now, yeah. but maybe the more, like, uh, dramatic gangs would have done things like throw flower on their victims. It's just as branding. Syllables. It is. It is it's all branding. branding. That is what it is. Yeah. So I have to admire it as a little bit of branding. The Crips flower bloods. thing. Yep. Like kind of, kind of like that just as a person who works in marketing and branding. Um, <laughs> don't wear it. red cause you might get shot. Right. 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 That is, that's a very broad brand right there. But yeah. Yeah. But problematic even. Yes. I would say so. I'm sorry. You the can't flower, claim an entire flower on your victims. I kind of like that little that's, touch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like nice. a calling card. Yeah, exactly. So, the, I didn't fully understand. The, there's a Woolpacker gang, which I guess packs wool. And the wool. Docksiders? And then the Docksiders. Or no, Portsiders? Portsiders. And are they the ones who work with the baker? And so, or is it just the, the one the guy? No, the Woolpacker guy, Tom, what's his name? No, uh, not Tom. Freckles Delahunte. Good job. You always remember the names. I'm like, <laughs> that guy, dude, No, I totally, four. like, I couldn't remember the name of Tom Derringer, who's, like, one of the key characters. Uh, anyway. I never remember any of them. I'm lucky to remember <laughs> Hugh and Dot and, yeah. Um, Freckles yeah, still he, Freckles is, pretty... is the, is a wool, the leader of the Woolpackers, yeah. and he's okay. the baker's assistant. I think that's just his day job. He's okay. only a roving gang leader at night, you know, and on weekends. Right, right. But he's still got to pay the rent, so he's. Jack a- mentions why the why the flower, and I I really thought he said like that gang, you know, the one gang packs wool, and this other gang has they are tied to the bakery somehow, and so they all like are bakery assistants. I don't I don't know. I thought I it was know. a broader thing than just Freckles, the gang leader. Yeah. but it, I may be I, wrong. I don't know. So I, I also I yeah. It's hard to care. Yes, about that. <laughs> that is also true. Um, but um, I don't know. There's lots of little, lots of little details in here, like um, Dot's uh, cylindrical milk loaf tins are back. The last time we saw them was in the episode where she's she's worried about the fate mm. and her priest telling her she can't be seen with a Protestant boy, and Mr. <laughs> Butler counsels her. So those are actually a thing. It's called the English milk loaf. It's a bread. It's a bread type made with milk, and those pans are really interesting because they have a hinge. They're cylindrical and they have a hinge on them. Um, and they're the. These are not the type that she uses, but there is a type of them that has ridges in the loaf, and so you know where to slice the bread evenly oh. because there's a ridge every like three eighths oh, of an clever. inch. Clever. Yeah. Right. Hers don't have that, but I thought that was a nice little detail. Yeah. It's a very English thing. Huh. Um, so I think the milk toast, milk toast fop comes from the milk loaf because you would, it's these cylindrical loaves, you, you slice them and then you hmm. toast them. I think that, I believe that is what it's referring to. It's not. There really? was actually Are you serious? a person with that last name. Really? Mm-hmm. I know it is spelled differently. M-M-I-L-Q-E-M-I-L-K- Milk toast. Yeah, it's actually based off of that guy. But I still wonder if that wasn't the the character's name wasn't a reference hmm. to 
Mm, that could be to this very bland milk bread toast food because yeah, I'm looking that up milk milk t- milk bread milk loaf a milk loaf is very bland like what you'd give to an invalid okay because they can't have spicy food um oh hey here you go on wikipedia the character's name is a deliberate misspelling of the name of a bland and fairly inoffensive food milk toast Ugh, nice. full circle my friend for the win um <laughs> and in that scene where she's she's in the kitchen well I, I think it's actually a different scene um when Hugh and Bert are she's trying to get Franny's trying to get Hugh and Bert to go bet on the <laughs> yes and they're Duke, like all right we'll do that for yeah. you I love that Mr. Butler is always the one who knows about the shady dealings he's got his little teapot and he's like well i suppose it's the weighted gloves and rigged bedding and blah 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 <laughs> yeah, he lists off like 10 things in an earlier episode he's helping her select a semi-automatic <laughs> weapon like <laughs> yeah he gives all of this perfect terminology and then oh, I, i'd imagine and then yeah. he throws the little tip in to the conversation about the greek He's like, eh, it's all Greek to me. And oh. then as soon as Franny leaves, Bert's like, so two pounds on the Greek yeah. then? He's like, yeah, it's a Shermet. It's so good. <laughs> and of course, our everybody's favorite dumb Greek boxer. That mm. guy is so over the Here top, hilarious. The yeah. He is great. I love his character. Yeah, he is over the top. He is and, but, so dumb. But Franny is like the perfect match for him because he's like, you will see more of me. Look at me. I am Greek. And she and said, muscle. Yeah. much more, I hope. Like she totally takes his bait but every like, time. Why Why is he her type? Like, I don't get it. Like, why would she? Is it just because he's meat candy or what? Like, he's meat candy, but he's also not ashamed of it. And I think she loves that. I think she... I love that she's flirting with him and he gives her the tickets and then she turns around and literally runs into Jack. She's like, oh! <laughs> that is such a great scene. And he totally... Jack plants himself right there. Yeah. Like, he does this intentionally. Like, For somebody who, like, doesn't want to feel beholden to any man, she's noticeably... She's a little chagrined. Un, yeah, noticeably chagrined when, when he's right there and has clearly just witnessed her interaction with Yorgos the Greek. <laughs> she's, she's like, oh, you might want to just look up on the corner of that yeah. tent. By the way, um, the green tent right there might have something important for you. And then it turns out it's very important. It's this like blood-covered, giant, serrated, yeah. gory. Uh-huh. I mean, if ever, if ever there was a good setup Oof. for a Crocodile Dundee reference, I mean, come on, you know what I'm going to say? <laughs> That's not a knife. This is a knife. <laughs> I even drew the knife in my notes. I have a little serrated. <laughs> Perfect. It also it also would make a good bread knife for those little milk it toast would. loaves. Yes, it would. The serrated, the serrated blade maybe. would be very helpful for that. Yeah. yeah, that is an ugly knife. Yeah, that would do like, some real wow. damage. Wow, you're not gonna you're not gonna live through no getting one's stabbed with from that. that. Yeah, and of course, why is it a hell of a knife? Oh, because it was a weapon in World War One, right? Where all of the worst of humanity came together. Like, let's find out the worst and most novel ways to kill yes. people in World War One. The most painful. If the and mustard deadly. gas didn't get you, the giant serrated bread knife would get you. <laughs> Thing is so bad. Oh God. Yeah, yeah, that is a gruesome. And in fact, like, it's so iconic. Like you can't you can't hide a what this is not a nondescript pistol like right. this is such a distinctive weapon that even Mr. Biggs was like holy god yeah the last time I saw one of those was in the trenches sticking out of the belly of one of my guys like yep. you don't forget a knife like that right so the storyline with Tom and his brother and then 
all the gang warfare and <sighs> I just sort of couldn't really care all that much. Sorry. And then you have yeah. like the, the cop being killed. And so I, that part, it like, is, it is true. I mean, they're, they are, I think they're nodding that like, yeah, there's all of this anti-Aboriginal sentiment in Australian society anyway, but like what happens now, and we live in Tacoma where a cop just got killed a uh-huh. couple of days ago, like cop killers do not fare well in no. society. Like, like no one gets people angry like a cop being murdered and you know as it turns out it's accidental in this one yeah which this, is yeah which is which, sad and it but, was yeah a domestic violence situation which was really sad too yeah yeah uh, so yeah i mean the cop a, a cop death it all feels very current that part yeah. of the storyline it definitely line. ticks all the boxes yeah of like that's all that's been a, a battle forever i think and, and i think also of, oftentimes like if if a cop is a victim it often blinds justice to if there are any like minorities involved mm-hmm. or uh, disadvantaged populations as soon as a cop gets killed in there like it gets muddled yeah immediately because sometimes justice isn't served because right. all they can think of is well a cop got killed so we have to heads need to roll here i i feel like it's the tide is starting to turn though i mean we're starting to see cops that are actually sentenced well, um god enough of these like god especially in the u.s there have been so many cops killing young men of color yeah that's unarmed young men of color and, and yeah like and i i remember first thinking about this like years ago when this when this was first starting to really come to prominence it's like why is it that cops are now using deadly force in like almost every every situation every situation yeah. now yeah there was like um a few weeks ago uh, a woman who was mentally unstable was wielding scissors and was shot yeah scissors that's and they and they aren't aiming for the kneecaps anymore no. either like they're shooting to kill every time now a lot of this show gets into current issues and in this particular episode that one rang true yeah very true and yeah it's really unsettling and i i'm glad that it's in this show that could otherwise be sort of tossed out as just like pointless entertainment but it's not it Mm. definitely calls your attention to things that you're like, oh yeah, that would have been really bad. Oh wait, that's still happening. You know? Yeah. And I appreciate that very much. So a lot of this episode was like, eh, to me in terms of the issues it raised, like gangs, yep, it's bad. They're a thing, (laughs) you know, like, yep. But the, but this, yeah, the, the cop and cop versus gang, cop versus even other cops. That was interesting. That right. Jack was like, this is the last place I'm going to go in the investigation yeah. is other cops. And um, yeah, I mean, we still we still have that too. So that that was interesting. Yeah. Um, back to Yurgos the Greek though <laughs> and how much I love him. So I think, yeah, your, your question about like, why does Phryne love him so much? And I think it's because he totally knows that he is man candy except when the, it comes down to it in the oh, bedroom yeah. like that but is that's so funny yes that's the punchline is like this whole time he's like come and see more of me i'm amazing i'm this hunky blah, blah, blah. and then she actually gets him in her bedroom and he won't he's not do interested. anything but admire himself yeah which is so hilarious and she's like, she even, you... like, that's the most like explicit scene so far too, yeah. because she actually like, it's out of shot, like it's behind her, but she's like, reaches down totally. And he's like, Oh no, that's below that's the belt. Below she's the like, belt. no shit, Sherlock. <laughs> <laughs> like, 
that's the point. That is, I don't, I don't think that they would have done that on American TV. Her arm no. would not have gone there. Yeah, when that happened, I was like, oh, oh, okay. We're being real about this. Yeah. Also, and I don't know if this is real pervy. I don't mean it to be. <laughs> I don't think that she is wearing any kind of like bra type thing nope. under those no. peach pajamas. And that is, again, something that you would not see in American television. Yeah. Everything is sanitized in this country. Right. Like, even if you're wearing... Or like artfully hidden by yes. like the... Ama- like, like anything that is... L-shaped bed sheet or like that (laughs) right anything that would be real like considered to be a real body part is somehow like molded over so that you don't see actual humans right you see just like like nipples airbrushed out of underwear models and yeah like they're wearing sheer underwear but god forbid a nipple shows up there right because we can't have that so i really yeah like the (laughs) the obvious grab to his crotch is so fascinating and yeah i mean yes that is what she would be doing like she's wrestling with her she's getting thrown around a bit and you see some stuff bouncing around there because she's yeah she's real she's a real woman right i That's love what, those those silk peach pjs yes, by the that way that is the top of my costume category yeah in this episode those there's pe- precious little costume action in this yeah, episode there anyway. really isn't much but that peach pajama set she i think she wears it one other time i think you're earlier right. on but she's wearing she's I like think in bed boa. Yeah. yeah and she's, she's in bed the, so you only see a little bit of it yes yeah and she's wearing like a the cape with the feathers on it yeah because that's what i wear in my oh, bed of course as i'm taking my morning tea um yeah you only see a little bit but this time we get to see the front and unfortunately we don't see the back because the back is where the real beauty is isn't so, it like semi-backless like doesn't yes. it like drape like till kingdom come in the back there a black cord holding the shoulders together oh like, yeah it's it like is. a reverse cowl neck back there yeah, it's like exactly yeah. there's like this lapel that goes backwards with kind of a black scalloped yes. pattern on it um and the and the uh pant legs are also trimmed with that yes and I oh my gosh it's just so gorgeous but yeah there's a black like cord with a tassel I mean it's it's a perfect seduction pajama set it doesn't leave all that much the imagination it's and it's perfect because it like it looks really comfortable why doesn't Jack get to see it come Come on on. it's wasted on this dumb please let it be in the movies please let her wear this please let Jack get to deal with the cord please <laughs> I'm with you. I will sign that petition. Yeah, right. <laughs> Change.org. Worthy. Come on. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, it's it's a gorgeous pajama set. I I heart it so much. I heart it. <laughs> yeah. And the other the other thing that gets that I heart so much is um and it and is so gratuitously incongruous because of when and where she's wearing it. The gold dress yes. with the with the, fur, the ermine so, stole again and the headdress. I am so glad we feel the same on this <laughs> because it is an amazing outfit, but why is she wearing it in a boxing tent? Like, so it feels really uncomfortable. Kind of what you were saying at the beginning about her like swooping in and trying to rescue this lady and help her yeah. with all of her money and wealth and power. It feels kind of uncomfortable to me. Like she's going to this wrestling match where people are dressed betting. for the opera. She's dressed for the opera, and I understand like wrestling matches, people in boxing matches. I guess this is boxing, isn't it? Boxing. I don't yeah. know. But it's but all it's, sports it's, it's all part of that so, world, right? The- and and you see like now in Vegas, like everybody's 
especially the people women really dress up for this people stuff. dress like, up women really dress up they're on the arm of some big guy who's got money on the fight you know like it's kind of a yeah. it's a trophy thing and so and there's something about like the like roman gladiator yeah. hunger games yeah let's all dress it, up for the brutality it, it pushes all of those buttons that i find are like kind of the worst the worst buttons. of humanity the worst yeah. of humanity like, like our lowest we our dress basest. up for the opera to go see people kill each other yeah which reminds me of a saturday night live jack handy quote deep thoughts by jack handy <laughs> where he says to me boxing is like ballet except there's no music no choreography and the dancers hit each other <laughs> <laughs> wrestling has choreography they like plan it but my dad was on a plane with a bunch of professional wrestlers once really yes and they were all like, you know, some of these guys were the supposed nemesis, you know, oh, they were like sure, enemies sure. and they're all like, so how are the kids? And oh like, my gosh. Yeah. Well, it's all fake of course. anyway. Yeah. But yeah, that's really funny. They're all playing a part. They're all playing a right. role in this weird it is chore- it really is choreography. Is, yeah. yeah, I mean they have to I think boxing is more of a pure sport. Boxing, yes. Yeah. And like yeah, Olympic and- wrestling is not professional wrestling. They're right. not wearing it's- glitter and they're not luchadors like <laughs> Yeah, which is why nobody watches it, right? <laughs> but no, I so yeah, I, just I have scarring memories of junior high and like wrestling teams. I've been like, don't you like? Can we talk can about we talk how messed about up this the, all is? Yeah, like, I know. So yeah, my my bad for mixing up boxing and wrestling. It's they occupy all, the same space in my head. I think all, I did it. It's here too. Me. Yeah. So <laughs> so betting on the Greek band. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, anyway. Back to Phryne wearing this ridiculous, amazing gold dress with the, yeah, ermine stole and the, and the, um, like, Cleopatra headdress thing, which I, yeah, is a little over the top, but also it makes her ears poke out of her hair, and that's, like, a personal peeve yeah, of mine. Yeah, it's a little, like, Galadriel's headdress. It doesn't, it was just, it's too much, and, and, and I really, you can't, it, it clamps down that hairdo, and you yeah. can't clamp down the bob. And her ears stick out of her bob, and it, it, which away the loses sleekness. the point yes. of the bob. Yes. So I don't like that, but also like the situation that she's wearing it in seems really offensive to me because she mm-hmm. is coming to this place where people have very little money. Like they're literally fighting each other and it's to all, keep bread on the for table. Scraps. Yeah. Yes. And like that's, there's already something so brutal and wrong and awful yes. about that. And so to traipse in wearing all of this finery, it, it seemed incredibly rude. And, like, there, you know, there's also that bit about the money on the dead man and yeah. the blood money for the tombstone for the for Jimmy. Right. There's, there's money, some serious stuff to unpack about all that. This money is not for frivolous things. This money is for people to keep living and for, like, important and, Yeah, and Friday's like, someone say money? Right. I got like, money. People's lives are kind of at stake here. And yeah. so she's just coming and treating it like a night at the opera. Yeah. And I really, it didn't sit well, that yeah. outfit. And, yeah. and then her coming behind the scenes and witnessing the fight between Big Arthur and his wife and, like, trying to interject. And, yeah, I just, I felt like um, it wasn't sure-footed. This, this episode, like her, the use of Franny in here was, was off a little bit. You know, in contrast, we have Hugh who steps in to fight for Tom mm-hmm. and it's the opposite for Hugh because Hugh, if he were on duty, he'd be in his Bobby uniform, which is a form of finery because it's very crisp, like well-maintained uniform, but he strips the uniform off to become 
one of these guys. He becomes one of them. He fights without any shielding, without any special equipment. No bulletproof vests on our guy here. Mm-hmm. And he's down to his shirt sleeves. And I think that's an interesting contrast. That is. Because he sheds the costume of his status yeah. in order to fight. Whereas Phryne is all decked like out in her status. Yeah. yeah, you're right. It causes Hugh problems at work. It causes yeah. him problems in his personal life because he's trying to wrestle with what he has seen. And then at when work. he's in the interrogation room with Jack, Hugh doesn't want to incriminate Tom. And Jack knows that Hugh is not saying he Jack's like, come on. Yeah. And then Tom Tom actually rescues Hugh a bit because Hugh knows he's in a compromising situation and Tom's like, Come on, you know I was there. He doesn't make Hugh say it. Yeah, yeah that's really true. This is definitely a huge episode. There's some stuff to unpack in this. I don't know. Do I feel like unpacking it all? No. I don't know that I do. I do have a little bit of menswear in here. Ooh. A little bit. Mr. Biggs. Mr. Biggs is a snappy dresser for a hobbit. (laughs) (laughs) Big Arthur? Yeah. Oh, okay. He's wearing, when we first meet him, he's he's wearing a very plain brown waistcoat with matching cap. But it's pretty... He's pretty put together. He's wearing a gold woven tie, which is a nice little touch there. Hmm. Um, And his waistcoat is odd because standard waistcoat has three pockets. Two uh, welt pockets at the waist for like a pocket watch. And then then there's a a third pocket on the breast, usually on the left side for like a pen or Hmm. whatever. Um, his, His waistcoat has four pockets. Two waist pockets, two breast pockets. Odd, 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 odd. And then he's wearing, later, his show outfit. His waistcoat is maybe silk. Maybe. Hmm. I can't figure out what else it would be. That striped red waistcoat is so over the top. He's like a ringmaster. Yes. Well, he is. He is, yeah. And then that crazy bow tie that he wears with it. Yeah. Which is just hilarious. I don't know. Huh. Those are my only menswear notes in this. Even even the dudes don't wear anything interesting in this. I just there's oh. um, one more thing I wanted to point out that Franny wears. Yeah, earlier in the show, not at the end, she is wearing this gorgeous embroidered trench coat slash kimono. So it's 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 I like a. I thought that I thought that was the cockfighting robe. Was I wrong? Is it? I didn't get a it good look be. at it. It might be. I thought it was the cockfighting. But, but why would she be wearing that with she, Jack at her house? She belts. It's treated like a trench coat. Maybe it is different. I, I just think, I just read it as the cockfighting robe, so I didn't no, think I anything think you're of right. it. I think she just belts it and make it, makes a jacket out of it and put, pairs I it with a break and enter beret. And like, it's, I want to see that again because I, okay. don't, I don't remember. Well, it's gorgeous. <laughs> that's, that's, the, that's the baseline yeah. of my whole note is like, it's just gorgeous. You know, so the, the outfit that Franny wears for most of the episode is that Harlequin boucle jacket, which I'm not a fan of. Oh my gosh, yes. This is something I really wanted to talk about. Yeah, because it, it's, first of all, weirdly constructed. It reminds me of, like, you see scarves made of novelty yarn that, like, won't keep yeah, you yeah, worn. Yeah, yeah. And there's, like, like it's, like, silk woven, yes. weird, ugh, um, <laughs> But so her, her jacket is, the main material is like a fine mesh. It's like, like a, chiffon or something. Yeah. Yeah. And then on top of it are these, like, 
these diamonds. argyle diamondy entrelock sort of style diamonds made of some sort of weird boucle or chenille material yes which is awful <laughs> and in that like black and beige and white, white color yeah. combination that i hate yeah and even the most interesting part is the feathers on her the peacock yes. feathers on her are even trimmed into diamond shapes that i love with a I, razor blade which i think was great yes that part i absolutely loved um yeah the the, the detail in the in the cloche is perfect yeah it is also coming those feathers are coming out of a bouquet of the of diamonds the boucle diamonds yes. weird like it's which like a bow that didn't quite, so I really, really, really dislike the fabric of this Me coat. Me too. And I had to wonder. So I read an interview, it may have been with Essie Davis, where she's talking about how Marion Boyce cut into vintage fabric for one of these costumes. And it was fabric from the actual era yeah. that she'd had in her collection. Um, and I'm wondering, could this be it the fabric? could be. I... I don't honestly. I, I think don't. those argyle diamonds look like carpet samples. I, yeah, they do. They absolutely do. Like hot glued to a freaking silk at coat. Like I just can't. I, yeah, I can't. <laughs> I really hate. I really the fabric hate it so very much. Like I didn't. I didn't like the fall. The the silk fall embroidery jacket that we've seen a couple yeah. times. But I'm like, whatever, misstep, yeah, whatever. That, that I can but this, handle. I'm like, no. This I grumpy cat actively no. detest. She <sighs> is wearing. Uh, she yeah, wears so the, it for like she's every scene. Every scene it's I like know. endless. I know. Never <laughs> takes, and then when she finally does change her clothes, what does she put on? The stupid sea urchin pin that I hate. That's right. The like green. The tribble. Yes. The that's tribble. Made, that's like yeah. made of. What is it made of? It's like made of. It's like um, a, It looks like it's. It looks like it's, it's like made those of, Chinese finger trap things. Yeah. Or. <laughs> or like the little netting that comes on fruit in your Harry yeah. and David box. It's like someone made a pin out of that. It just makes me angry. <laughs> I'm going to make a pin out of that. <laughs> yeah, I'll get you a box of pears for Christmas and we can like have a hot glue craft time. <laughs> Her accessories in this episode are pretty good. Um, Along, while she's wearing that awful coat that we both dislike, she has these beautiful mother of pearl earrings they're yes. like two flowers dangling yes. and they are really stunning and they're sort of like stylized dahlias or something yes and i thought it was an interesting pairing with this very like you know geometric what it would go better with though everything else well yeah <laughs> the chrysanthemum coat hello totally oh yeah and she could even wear the stupid amoeba pin with it and i wouldn't hate it under those circumstances you know it's possible she did wear those with the chrysanthemum coat and i just didn't notice maybe i don't know i was I looking, have for, old I was basically looking for any other thing to look at in the scenes where and she was we wearing have not seen that chrysanthemum coat again like yeah, i don't think we have bring, it was season one let's sign a petition to bring back the <laughs> chrysanthemum yeah. coat in let's the movie sign a petition to keep that harlequin coat like yeah. buried forever and ever the one the one outfit she's wearing that i love that we only see for like a second because it's at the very end um she's wearing this beautiful um square neck wedgewood blue blouse and skirt <gasps> yes combination and they go to Luna park yes and um good good eye i wrote down the Luna park i was going to talk about Luna park um <laughs> and she's also wearing beautiful earrings with that she's wearing these kind of ice blue things when he tells her to i wouldn't bother with the hat yeah <laughs> 
Fur is it fur it's, or is it ostrich feathers? No, I think it's feathers. Yeah, I I'm think pretty you're right. sure it's a feather boa like it's like lining. a collar though. It's a collar it's a made fur, of or sorry, feather collar. Yeah. yeah, and it's like a jacquard um, fabric. It is ice. Yeah, ice blue fabric made. Woven. And it was sort of like a half. She wears that wonderful cocoon coat in ruddy gore as she's going to the theater yes. with the big um like boa trim yes and i felt like this was sort of a half like a day version a of demi that. yeah a, a demi a demi version, a demi of, version it. Yeah. of the cocoon coat yes over that i called it like baby blue or something it's it's subtler than that it's got more gray in it. it's more of like a wedgewood okay yeah yeah the yeah the blouse you really don't even see too much of the, the shirt. I love but I love that square but boat neck like or that's not boat neck square neck it's it's really beautiful and it's such a um <laughs> it's so funny because she puts that on after the peach pajama set in which she is trying to seduce your goes the Greek but then she comes trotting down the stairs in this very like innocent looking I know pale blue ensemble and, I know and it's so cute that she's like nope I'm, like, I'm just gonna Jack, try to you seduce don't even Jack know now. what you just missed you I just know. don't even know yeah, and her look of glee when Mr. Butler knocks on the door and he's like, um, the inspector is here. If, he's like, <gasps> if you're able. Yeah. She's like, oh, oh, okay, I'll do that instead. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. But I love the, your For all we know, for all we know, the boxer is like still in her bedroom. Right. Still like, like just, looking at her just, mirror, like yep. two days later, like. So a tidbit about him, mm. um, that. I got from our good friend, Jojo Stiletto. Oh, whom you may remember from our recap of episode one. Yes, Murder Most Scandalous. Um, she mentioned that Yurgos the Greek was in Thunder from Down Under. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and I don't know if he still is, but he, uh, he also has ties to the burlesque community and is rumored to be an incredibly nice person. And oh, I believe it. That's because good. that smile on his face. Yeah. Is just and he'd have to be an awfully good sport to play such a blazing idiot. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. I, there's just something about his smile. It's really lovely. It is and charming. I have to imagine that somebody with that smile has to be a very nice person. Yeah. So I thought that was just a nice little nice. tidbit to include. Yeah. Thanks, Jojo. Yeah. Thanks, Jojo. <laughs> and coming up is the the Miss Friny, the Miss Fisher burlesque. Show yes, Miss Fishnet's murder mysteries. Isn't it Miss Fishnet's stripper stripper mysteries? Yes, even better. Yes, in January. Sorry, Jojo, we totally butchered your. (laughs) We're trying to like plug you. We we totally. This is why no one hires us to do advertising. Yeah, we have no sponsors. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) sorry, zero sponsors and proud. Yeah, no, I'm so excited. That's still like a month and a half, almost two months away. But it'll get us through. Like late January in the Pacific Northwest is such a gross time to be here. It will get us through. Late January is going to suck for other reasons too. Uh, yeah. Oh God, God, I like I had like almost forgotten. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, but yeah, it's going to be something to look forward to. It'll be what six days after a week, seven days. Seven, seven days. Is it the 21st? No, it's and then, the 20th, January 20th. Oh, okay, yeah. So exactly seven days after I think we're just going to need to drink that whole week. I, yes. I think alcohol is going to factor in. Oh. I was really hoping to go somewhere, but I, that's not going to happen. And I've got this thing. I am this going awesome somewhere thing. the following week, potentially, but ugh, I just... 
Yeah. yeah so can't. this will get us through. Yes. Like, let's let's focus on the good thing here. We've got Miss Fishnet, Fishnet's stripper <laughs> mysteries to look forward to, and, and it's been extended like twice, I think. Right. Not surprisingly, because so yes. Yeah, so so she, let's get drunk at the inclusive all genders sexy party. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that sounds pretty. That's great. almost subversive, I think. At uh, that it point. is. I think it totally is, and I'm so glad. In so, the yeah. holdout city where Seattle has already pledged to not comply with any racist or discriminatory legislation that comes down the pike. So yay, Seattle Go for Seattle. that. Raising Clink. my teacup. Yeah. I know. Yeah. So that'll be good. But that she's extended it a couple times because I am not the least bit surprised it's sold out within like two oh, seconds. Oh, of course. Yeah. Because I mean, it's a pretty small theater and the Miss Fisher community, I don't know if you guys know this, it's kind of a big deal. Kind of a big deal. <laughs> kind of a tight community. Um, Women, they're a thing. <laughs> Who knew? The only other thing I have written down is um, Luna Park and the roller coasters. Yes. So that, uh, you mentioned Luna Park. That is where they go. That is a real place. Um, there actually were five Luna Parks in Australia. Really? Yeah, there was like a chain. It was like an amusement park oh. chain. And that one there, which is in St. Kilda, home of the Beach Huts, that was the first one. And it was built, I don't have an exact year. I couldn't find it, but it was pre-World War One. I. I think it was built just before World War One. The rest of the Luna Parks were built circa 1930. Huh. So, um, kind of interesting. Um, St. Kilda has had other amusement parks, the most famous being Dreamland, which was only there for a few years. It was only there from 1906 to 1909 when it closed down. Um, but they had a roller coaster called the Figure Eight that was there until 1914, when I assume the war broke out and people weren't exactly riding roller coasters anymore. Um, I love that clown doorway. I love that. I just It reminds me of like the Asbury Park boardwalk. It's a really good mixture of fantasy and horror. Which is, again, like in with like circuses and yeah. it also in Australia is the world famous Spiegel tent, which is a mirrored tent that was imported from, I think, Austria. Huh. Um, so it's like this whole world of like weird performances and like subcultures and uh, I don't huh. know. It's all of a piece. This, this big, and I think a lot of it, this was again, like responses to the the strict Victorian culture and so the circuses came into prominence really during the Victorian era and amusement parks and bathing huts and all mm -hmm. of these you know burlesque shows and all of these things and um so the, the roller coaster um and she refers to it as the great scenic railway but it actually was what it was called they actually called it the great scenic rail the is railway that, is that like the name of that particular roller coaster yes. or is that um but it also was not it was actually uh, the that particular roller coaster is called the Scenic Railway, but actually the um, there was a the first patented roller coaster, which was patented in 1885 by an American, was called the Great Scenic Railway. Railway. So hmm. it became, it, I think it became a like a general term okay. for roller coasters, but actually there was a brand name called that. But roller coasters <laughs> actually date date earlier to that. Um, Catherine the Great commissioned. What what became sort of the proto roller coaster in Russia? It was what? called the Russian Mountain. It was basically a roller coaster constructed of ice, ah. and people would slide around what? on it. Yeah, in 1784. Oh How crazy is that? That is crazy. Yeah, and then, terrifying also. Totally. <laughs> so the the roller coaster as we know it was not patented until 1885. But before, so we had Catherine the Great and her Russian Mountain, which I would kill to see something like that you would be killed also totally oh it. yeah <laughs> so. totally 
Um, also in Pennsylvania in 1827, the mining companies developed what they called the gravity railroads, which they used their um, track technology of, of trundling the coal out of the mines mm-hmm. to build an amusement thing that they charged people like 50 cents a head or something to <laughs> to ride, which is crazy. And yes. then the Coney Island Cyclone was one of the most famous roller coasters, which was built in 1927. So. Huh. The 20s were, again, like yet another heyday of this big cultural thing that ended in the Great Depression and then had a resurgence in the 1970s with things like Sandusky, Ohio and um, the amusement parks in the American Midwest. What? What's... There's a huge... um, There's a huge amusement park in Sandusky, Ohio on the lakeshore that... Really? Yeah. Yeah. What's it called? I think it's called the Racer. That was the the wooden roller coaster there. It's still there, I believe. And that kind of started the like the neo golden age of roller coasters really? that we're still kind of in i had not heard about sandusky it's a thing okay it is a thing fascinating yeah that's all i got yeah this one yeah <laughs> boxing boxing half cast half roller coasters Franny kind of step in where she shouldn't, maybe in clothes that she shouldn't wear where she's wearing them. And (laughs) her wallpaper and her boudoir, I do love. Oh, and of course, the Modigliani painting in the background. Is that what it is above the fireplace? Yeah. I knew you would know who it was. Yes. Okay. And then, but isn't it? I don't actually know if it actually is a Modigliani painting, but it's certainly done in the style of a Modigliani painting. Above her bed, is that a Klimt piece? Like a. There's um, a little Klimt on the wall next to her bed. Okay, I think that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Or at least done in the style of Klimt. Right, yes. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I know Klimt pretty well, but that's not one I actually recognize. But I don't know Modigliani well enough to know if that's an actual Modigliani painting. or Because there's also one on her wall that's done in the style of Van Gogh, but I'm pretty sure it's not an actual Van Gogh. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, I do. Ha- I have a toast idea. Good. Um Harkening back to Franny's line about beside every man is a good woman and she must always be ready to step in front. I feel like this is more important than ever for women post-election heading into 2017, which if you thought 2016 was a bad year, oh God, I fear for us all. So maybe we should toast to women who are not afraid to step in front. I love that. So, And I hope that you and I will both have the courage to step in front. And so to everyone who listens here, may you as well. So to stepping in front. To stepping in front. Cheers.